70% of diagnoses are made by physicians from lab tests. It's very hard to get a complete picture and a comprehensive diagnosis without some type of a test. And yet the experience had largely not been innovated on from the care delivery model for the patient in decades. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I sit down with Julia Cheek, CEO of Everly Health. Julia's company is redefining the medical testing industry through a variety of at-home diagnostics. Her goal is to provide people with more transparency and greater access to testing at far lower cost. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Julia, thank you so much for being with us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's so nice to have you on today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start by asking you about the business itself. How did the idea for the business come to you and what drew you to starting a healthcare company? It's interesting to reflect back. You know, I founded Everly Well in 2015. And in fact, as I think some have read about my background, did not come from an industry background in healthcare. And I actually think that that has been something that's allowed me to more fully pursue our vision um, really in a dogged way because I had my own experience with the healthcare system that really fueled the idea and ultimately fueled me leaving my corporate job to start Everly Well my late 20s, had good corporate insurance and was having a number of unexplainable and somewhat general symptoms and ended up going through this odyssey of different specialists and physician visits and getting a bunch of lab tests done, some of which I got the results for, some of which I did not, all of which I ended up getting hit with a number of different bills, whether it was not covered or I hadn't met my deductible or any number of classifications, I ended up paying, I think, over a couple thousand dollars out of pocket for this assortment of tests, none of which were really brought together to tell a story about my health. I started to look at the space and realized how essential testing is to our healthcare infrastructure. 70% of diagnoses are made by physicians from lab tests. It's very hard to get a complete picture and a comprehensive diagnosis without some type of a test. And yet the experience had largely not been innovated on from a care delivery model for the patient in decades. So you had this experience that was somewhat similar to the DMV. Everybody had to do it. Nobody liked it. Wasn't conveniently designed for people to be able to either access testing affordably or even do this in a way that didn't require time off work, transportation, just a myriad of what we know really impacts health economics issues and outcome issues with this very basic service that was essential. And so I knew that there were many, many women who faced similar challenges in the healthcare system like me. I knew there were ways we could innovate on it using existing proven methods and science. What I probably didn't predict back in 2015 is how much this problem would resonate with everyone for a variety of different reasons and different blockers that they faced in the healthcare industry with testing. And so as we started to get traction in the first couple of years, this really became something that obviously took on a life of its own and really was a solution for many, many, many different people, not just women from 25 to 45 that I had envisioned being who I was designing for. I love how you describe this. We can all relate to this, to getting tests, to have them being really disruptive, to get maybe even not explained. So everything you're saying makes total sense to me. So how did you go from having this idea to executing a business plan and really launching? Like, Take us behind the scenes of that year when it was all coming together. 
the way in which I decided to quit and go out on my own with some early kind of backers and advisors, but really just as a solo founder, was not without a lot of foresight and pre-planning over becoming an entrepreneur in general. And so while this was a really easy decision and one that was a really big leap in the moment, I had really been working on different business plans, brainstorming with friends on co-founding different companies, advising companies for free in my weekend time for the four or five years prior. And I just knew I wanted to be a founder. I also knew that this company would most likely fail, that it would be years and years and years, if not decades of work, and that it had to be something that I was really driven and compelled by making a difference in the world, that it would make that likely failure worth it. And so for me, I can tell the story truthfully and it being very dramatic, right? I left my job, was fortunate to get a little bit of funding very early on, hired my team after raising another round of funding, moved to Austin in a U-Haul, we sold our house, right? All these things that sound and were in fact the kind of typical founder's tale. But what's missing from that is this drive and this assessment process that I went through of industries and problems for years prior and brainstorming that I think really helped lay the foundation and made the decision really easy in the moment. I didn't have the best business plan for this idea. In fact, I had much better business plans for many other ideas. They were not what I was going to be fueled by. And to really put in the grind and the resilience and handle the rejection in the same way that I felt passionate about this. You know, I've read you say that if you were going to go out and start a business, you wanted it to be transformative. So tell us what's transformative about the company telling you now what I think is transformative probably seems obvious in this ongoing pandemic life as unfortunately hundreds of millions of Americans have become even more familiarized with the normalization of home testing and virtual care. That combination of services of making what was routine healthcare needs virtual, accessible, and easy to accomplish outside of the typical in-person infrastructure that we all were used to pre-pandemic. However, I think it's important to recognize how radical this concept was just even five years prior to COVID-19, which was the fact that by and large, there were a number of tests that people could self-collect in the home. You could have physicians involved throughout the process, but you didn't actually have to go physically see them. They could review your data, your health history, and your lab records and determine should you get that test and then what your results would mean from that. And you could do this on your own time and at a price point that was transparent with you. None of what I just said should in fact be particularly transformative in any other industry. In healthcare, it is today and it was back then. This notion of transparency when people are paying for a service with dollars, hard-earned dollars in their pockets, is something that we bring people back to over and over again because it almost feels like we've accepted a rule in economics and healthcare with patients that just doesn't make any sense. And yet we've become so accustomed to just paying premiums and not having transparency in what our dollars are going toward that it's something we continue to reinforce as transformative. And in fact, our goal is to get the cost of all of our testing to less than the cost of a copay. You know, when I think about what you do and how you can do in the privacy of your own home, I'm so struck by the fact that most of the time I still go to a doctor or lab for a blood test. They're taking it with vials and vials, and it looks like they're taking so much in terms of a sample. And yet what you do in many of your tests are, you know, minimal, not so invasive. How do you do the testing? Like what's the science behind that that allows you to do that without all that, you know, vials and sort of larger samples? 
It's interesting, especially in in light of current events, that dried blood spot testing, as well as saliva, urine, swab testing, has been around for decades. And now I think it's really important to distinguish, you cannot use this, you cannot use at-home self-collected testing methods, one, for everything, and two, for a bunch of things on a tiny, tiny amount. So that is why it's really important to understand which of these tests are screening tests, how much information you can get from one particular particular test. And certainly we don't aim to cover a hundred percent of complex and esoteric testing. And there's even things like CBC or CMP panels, which of course are typical to your standard physical that today are by and large, not able to be done using small enough volumes in the home. However, this type of testing has been used for diabetes, for cholesterol, for certain endocrine measures, STI testing for decades. So our ability to take something proven and really create what I call a completely novel care delivery model, right? We're not reinventing the science. We're partnering with labs and manufacturing companies that have this technology, but saying, how can we get it into people's hands in a more cost-effective and accessible way so that they can get these really important tests done? Now, I will say as one of the silver linings in diagnostics and testing with COVID is that we have seen a pull forward of so many amazing companies working on transforming what I call the miniaturization of lab testing. And so whether that's at the amount of material that you need or how this is run on a machine or what can be done in the home or even using saliva instead of blood, all of these are novel innovations that I believe will be relevant and in people's hands within the next five years. And that's really exciting because we have the commercialization engine to partner with a lot of these companies as they bring these novel technologies to market and get them into people's hands more quickly than they would. I love seeing the variety of tests on your website and how they're categorized. The general wellness, women's health, of course, energy and weight. I'm curious, what are the most popular tests that people buy from you? Yeah, we've had such an interesting, just what I would call uncapped demand as a result of these shifts in both knowledge of at-home testing and behaviors around virtual care since COVID began. And so we were considered and would have been considered a very fast-growing technology startup in early 2020. But I don't think we could have predicted what I would call the normalization of these products in such a rapid way. And so we've seen orders of magnitude of 350% year-over-year growth this year over last in categories like women's health, high triple-digit growth for our STI categories of testing, for things like colon cancer screening, cholesterol, diabetes, things that people need to screen regularly and are now in tune with this model. And so I think that that is what's really driven this fast growth is just the knowledge of the model. And then once you try it and have a great experience, most people don't go back. So tell us what the pandemic did for the business. I mean, you really pivoted so quickly and got into market with at-home COVID tests. Talk about the challenges of doing that, but the urgency of being in the market was something so important. It's so interesting. I love talking about this word pivot for COVID-19 because I actually think when we were in the middle of making these decisions, I was having the board, our investors, advisors were all saying, why aren't you going into COVID-19 testing? Because it was so aligned with our mission and vision of making lab testing affordable, convenient, and accessible for everyone. 
And so I had continued, you know, this was call it early February when it was really just starting maybe to become a little bit of a narrative about a virus happening in China. And I had pushed back and said, why would we get involved in this? We're a tiny startup. We're only 60 people. Let the federal government, let the large players deal with this. This seems like it will be a major distraction. And by the way, I don't think we can make a difference. And I think it's such an important lesson that small, nimble companies can play such an important role in moments and times of crisis because we were actually able to move so quickly when we decided after soliciting feedback from labs on their needs around COVID testing, when we decided to actually go into getting a test authorized by the FDA, we were able to move more quickly than others. And we also had technology built that would use capacity from regional labs labs that didn't have outbreaks. And so that was very, very novel. And I think allowed us to play in a space that was a big difference maker in the early days of the pandemic, but also addressed the problem in a different way than everybody else did. And yet, obviously, that was very necessary for the government and for the big players to scale. But we were able to come at this in a different way and still make a big difference. We ended up being the first company authorized by the FDA early May for an umbrella COVID-19 self-collection test. And what that means is any lab in the U.S. could use our data to become authorized to run testing using our kit. And so it was really that technology enablement to say, how can we help these labs get testing volume where it's needed the most? And we actually maintained a 48-hour turnaround time on PCR testing throughout all waves of the pandemic, but even the very early days. That is really amazing. What was something you really had to grapple with and try to turn around overnight? As a leadership team managing through the lack of information and providing confidence to our team. I mean, you'll remember when the country shut down, our entire company, like everyone else, was going through the same turmoil. Are our families going to be okay? What will people do about school? What's going to happen with my job? And our business saw some of those early impacts in the very first few weeks of the shutdown, where I was having to simultaneously, with our board and leadership team, manage between what are the triggers if our business does not recover? Because at the time, we expected a, a recession-like event, as you'll recall, in the capital markets. And then on the the other side, how am I going to lean into and ramp up and scale to support this great need? And those are really challenging dichotomies to lead against and to keep people focused and motivated and feeling safe. People want to feel secure. They want to know they're doing good work and they want things to be stable. And we had to all rise above that. Were you working remotely at the time? Were you in a hybrid model? How did you actually get people together to work on some of these problems? We were remote. The day that we made the decision to march forward and launch a test within two weeks as a team, we about three hours later moved everyone to work from home. These were also major infrastructure issues for us. We had been an entirely in-person team. So even just setting up those structures, setting up the technology while working so quickly on this was something in my mind for this team that accomplished this really superhuman and largely had very little to do with me and everything to do with the people that got in the boat and said, we want to make this happen. And we feel strongly that there's never been anything more aligned with our mission. That is incredibly true. I mean, the fact that you were on the most important health crisis of our time so quickly is really remarkable. Did you have to deprioritize other things that were happening at the time? And are you going back to any of those things now? 
in the early days, we really shepherded our resources towards scaling COVID. But as I mentioned, very quickly, behavior shifted more broadly around home testing. And so we began experiencing a significant growth in all areas of our business, which then meant we had to be able to also scale at that capacity across all facets. We certainly had deprioritized certain new product launches, certain build-outs of technology that I think we've largely already gone back to in 2021 and certainly by next year in 22. But you know what I think we were able to do is build out a scale and infrastructure, the level at which we had to support and how quickly we had to grow both in terms of supply chain, manufacturing, fulfillment, scale of our actual load balancing and API structure and technology is not to be understated. I mean, we increased our manufacturing capacity, I think, 250% year over year. We built out two owned labs via acquisition and build out, and then we acquired dozens of lab partners to help us scale like this. And so we now have a really big business to support the growth, but we had never faced that. We had always faced creating the demand for the business. I mean, it's so interesting to think about that. Prior to the pandemic, you might have had to create the demand for the products and sort of create a category that really didn't exist. And then here comes the pandemic, which accelerates the need and makes everyone understand the importance and the viability of what you're trying to do. I mean, that's really remarkable. Like, obviously, nobody asked for this, but the fact that you were just in this position at the time to be able to capitalize this is really incredible. The point you're making is so critical for leaders because with startups and when you're a founder and CEO, what's almost more important than anything else is market timing we were pulling forward demand and it was a light bulb moment. It was the reason that I applied to be on Shark Tank. It was the more people we have that can be aware of this, that it's not a home test is not just a DNA test and it's not just a pregnancy test. You can do a lot of other things. It was like a light bulb moment. So we knew we needed to get to as many people as possible and just educate them. The challenge, of course, is we're a small startup. We don't have hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing budget to educate an entire industry. And I feel like we've really benefited and the American public has benefited by having more players coming into this space and normalizing this. You know, this is such a huge opportunity to make healthcare better. There will be many, many winners. I am the person who went out to raise money and was told no dozens and dozens of times. I remember the number one question, which is we don't believe this is a problem and we don't believe there's a market because there's nobody else doing it. I love the opposite question now because it just shows me that people will benefit from this. It won't just be us, right? Americans will benefit from having these new models and being able to access care in different ways. And that's ultimately the goal. I'm really struck by the fact that you would get that question when you went out to raise money. Why do we need something like this? I mean, the fact is things like home pregnancy tests have been in the market forever. Women have been using this stuff for a long time. What do you think it was about investors' questions that they just didn't quite understand what you were trying to do? You know, I think that it's pretty easy to diagnose now in hindsight because this was five or six years ago. I think 100%, maybe 99% of the people I was pitching to were men, most of whom had not either experienced being ignored in the healthcare system or frankly, statistics would show that they weren't the ones actually making the healthcare decisions or being the managers of healthcare in their families. We know that women are really the chief medical officers of the American healthcare system. They make 80% of healthcare decisions for their families. There's 70% of the consumer spending economy. And so if you really want to understand who's making the decisions around what problems need solving, you have to talk to women. 
We also know that women are ignored in the healthcare system. Something like three-fourths of women have reported feeling ignored when they report symptoms to their doctors or not taken seriously. So they're often the ones looking for solutions to their problems. And so this all was a really big mismatch when I was pitching because my target customer base and who I was originally building for, it was hard for investors to put themselves in her shoes. In fact, I would often be referred into VCs because they would hear women who worked at the firm standing around talking about our tests and how much they had helped them. That was really powerful. The other side of the equation is frankly, this fallacy that insurance pays for everything. We actually know from our demographic data that we have a fairly robust set of customers that are women solving problems for their families in our consumer business, but equally robust is people who are under underinsured, gig economy workers and contract workers, and people who are constructing their health Healthcare services around what they need. And so with the advent of high deductible health plans really taking over the majority of many employer-supported plans, and with FSA and HSA accounts, people are becoming more and more responsible for these costs. And so they're going to use rational decision-making and shopping behavior to decide where to put their dollars. And certainly getting a surprise lab bill for hundreds of dollars is not in that equation. As you think about women's health too, I mean, you can certainly see this come through your offerings very powerfully. And it looks like so many of your advisors are leading women, doctors and other practitioners. What do you see as the future of women's healthcare for your company? Where is this focus going to go for you? You know, it's interesting. When I was originally pitching, I knew because of my own experience that women from 25 to 45 would need this service. But much of what women experience, which is frankly discriminated against with healthcare billing practices, with how drugs are validated here, even things like crash test dummies use use male figures instead of women, ignored for symptoms, even how that is perpetuated and what gets covered or not is still a major problem. And when you take it down into smaller populations, even than just women, half the population, you see those disparities to even greater degrees for women and people of color, right? And you start to look at this intersectionality and see incredibly poor outcomes, largely driven by poor research, poor legislation, and all of the structural biases that come into the system. And so in a perfect world, all of this is broken down and we're able to rebuild how coding happens, what's covered, what's not, how we think about diagnosing people and acknowledge a lot of these biases. I mean, the maternal health outcomes for women of color are egregious in the U.S. compared to women who are not of color and for all women compared to other developed countries. And these are things that we have data that shows this. Um, This is scientifically driven and research driven. And so to me, this is the next big opportunity because I don't think I appropriately knew or appreciated the degree to how pervasive this was in our healthcare system. And so it certainly won't be solved overnight, but I think we have to elucidate it, start talking about it and funding companies that are solving the different pieces of these structural issues. When you think about that opportunity going forward to serve women, better to serve women of color within that even more. Do you see the opportunity in terms of new testing or different tests and or new delivery channels and or even the service component that you offer? So for example, you'll have counseling with actual doctors who read people's tests that uh, are going through you. Where is that opportunity? Is it in that whole ecosystem or somewhere else? 
Well, I think the number one thing that Everly Health can do is reduce prices for people to have access to testing. I mean, again, our goal is to have every single product that we offer at less than the cost of a copay, such that everyone, almost everyone, can hopefully not have to make a decision between care and having a meal. And we will continue to push that forward because that, to me, covers the broadest populations for accessibility now. I do think digital health, that's why I've made a lot of my personal mission around digital health, creating accessibility, I think can focus on specific areas. There's now digital doula and pre and um, postpartum maternity apps that provide real-time care for people and have tremendous outcome data. There's LGBTQ family planning and the ability to really help couples that have typically been underserved be able to not face such high barriers in accessing fertility care. I mean, there's so many different areas that technology can help enable access for any population. And I certainly think, you know, some of that will be through Everly Health related to testing and treatment. But a lot of this will just be based on what I view as digital health's moment post-COVID to take really take advantage of that. Let's use this as a silver lining to help people adopt these tools and offerings that fundamentally will change the ability of healthcare to serve many, many more people than it has in the past. I love that. We've seen with either the at-home testing or delivery of mental health services, Mm -hmm. another example, you know, so many benefits from this period of time, which I do hope we continue in the future for accessibility purposes. So where do you see the company in five years? You know, what would be a wonderful vision and outcome for you? You know, I think we have so much work to do and it really feels like we're just beginning. And a large reason for that is because there's never been a better time to be in diagnostics. There are so many companies radically innovating on testing and innovating on how we deliver care using virtual care, physicians, apps, et cetera. And so we feel really fortunate and feel like now is actually the time to be making really bold moves. It's why we've acquired a number of businesses this year to really provide this end-to-end digital care experience around testing. And so I think that the future is super bright. We will continue to lean in on point of care and decentralized testing. We envision that people will be able to do hundreds of tests from the home over the next several years. And we want to be a big part in helping to commercialize that for Americans. I also think that you will see us expanding in certain ages and stages of life. So full end-to-end reproductive care, full end-to-end peri- and postmenopause care, full end-to-end sexual health care. These are areas where people come in and they need to start with a test, but we can actually help them throughout this stage of their life. And it's a pretty easy thing to engage people on once they've already come in and seen the value that you can get from a test. What's most exciting about it is this is what our customers actually tell us that they want. All of this comes from what we hear, like, hey, we would love to be able to do this. Hey, we don't want to have to go to a separate doctor. Is there any way that you can provide this service, right? And so we're able to say, how can we provide people with the very, very best care and do that through this novel delivery method? And that's really what we're focused on in the next five years or so. I'm very excited to see this. And I will have to say right now, I think the sleep and stress tests that you (laughs) offer probably are in my immediate future as I try to get better on that. I'm wondering if you can also talk about some of your influences in entrepreneurship in general. So just for the audience, I'll mention you went to Harvard Business School, you got your MBA in 2009, and you were with a lot of classmates who also went on to create really incredible companies and some big brand names that we know of. How did they influence you or just how did others in general influence you? 
Yeah, I think it's such an interesting reflection on the specific point in time at which I had the great fortune to attend HBS. And I didn't know anything about HBS. My parents were lawyers. I wasn't consulting and just generally decided consulting was not going to be my future path. And so I might as well apply to business school. And with great gusto, I then committed to applying to a number of schools in the very fastest timeline possible and was really overjoyed in 2009 to have the opportunity to attend HBS. What I didn't appreciate in the broader macro context and even in the context of the school was that most of my classmates coming in in the fall of 2009 had largely been people laid off in the Great Recession as banks imploded and as Mm. commercial real estate imploded and as lenders imploded. And we're kind of disenfranchised and disenchanted with everything going on and what they had been told was the way things are done and the jobs that you have and where you go and the types of careers paths you have on Wall Street, et cetera. And so I don't know if it looked like no one has yet done a study, but I can tell you that that the class of 2009 all the way through to kind of 2012 was really the beginning of the transformation of the school into an entrepreneurship school, which it's now known for. And I was, again, put in a very serendipitous situation to be surrounded by women who graduated before me, which was Birchbox, Rent the Runway, and then also to be around people like Katrina Lake, like Ruzwana Bashir. And I thought very highly of them. But I will also tell you, I thought to myself, if they can do it, why can't I? And I thought they're brilliant. I think they're amazing. But I'm also here in this environment. And I had never even known an entrepreneur. And I knew from the second that I was at HBS that that was what I wanted my future career path to be. It took me, you know, about five years after school to really kind of jump down that path. But it really was a light bulb for me. And it just is a, might sound like a, not intending for it to sound like an ad to HBS, but as a girl coming out of Dallas with a pretty traditional corporate career path, it really opened my eyes in ways that I don't think I would have discovered otherwise. We look forward to seeing so many great things from you and the company. So I just want to say thank you for joining us, but also thank you for you know really revolutionizing the space and being there for so many people at this really critical time. No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on and talk a little bit more about hopefully what will be the future of healthcare. And I'm hopeful for generations to come that people will see testing in a very different way. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Julia Cheek. Her company is making such important strides in improving the accessibility of essential medical information. I loved hearing about the evolution of Everly Health and how it quickly addressed the demand for at-home COVID tests. And I was particularly struck by her comments on the biases against women, especially women of color, as it shed light on the need to improve healthcare approaches for all women. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.